Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine and catch up with our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who steps back from the daily news to give his sense of the state of the war in 2024. For supporters of Ukraine, it's a difficult listen, but we think an important one. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 10th of January, one year and 320 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. Dom Nichols and Francis Sternley are away for some training over the next few days. They will be back. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, let's first look at the military aspect of it. Um, Russia has issued a veiled threat to launch a fresh offensive towards the northeastern part of Ukraine, so around the Kharkiv region, as calls escalate for the creation of a buffer zone to stop attacks on Belgorod. So this started when Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov yesterday said that Russian forces would do everything to prevent Ukrainian bombardment of that frontier region. So you'll remember that Ukraine has essentially targeted Belgorod on a number of occasions, whether it be the city or surrounding regions. So the city is only about 20 miles across the border inside Russia in retaliation for these long-range attacks on Ukrainian cities. So Peskov's comments have essentially prompted demands from pro-Russian ultranationalists for a large-scale offensive to advance at least 15 kilometres, I think that's about eight or nine miles, into the Kharkiv region to push back Ukrainian artillery and multi-launch rocket systems out of range of Belgorod. So this is what Peskov had to say. So he said, and I quote, Of course, our military will continue to do everything to first minimise this danger and then completely get rid of it. The SVO, which is an acronym for Russia's Special Military Operation, that's why I say that in bunny ears, um, continues for this purpose. So 
what I'd say is his sort of veiled threat comes after we reported last week that Ukraine was braced for a renewed offensive near Kharkiv with Russian forces, as well as targeting cities and civilian infrastructure. They were also hitting repetitively, repeatedly military targets in the northeastern city and the surrounding regions. Um, so there has been significant pressure on the Kremlin to launch a new offensive against Ukraine's second largest city, which Russian forces have never occupied, I believe, from memory, Roland was actually there on the first day of the invasion on February the 24th. Um, and it's basically because of wide-scale discontent over cross-border raids into Belgorod first by pro-Ukrainian Russian rebels, uh, which was May last year. And then last week, Ukraine's military intelligence published footage purportedly showing an incursion across the front line. So the Institute of the Study of War has been writing on this in their daily battlefield battle update. And it said the ISW, so that's the US-based think tank, has said the Russian military's likely inability to con- conduct an operation to seize significant territory in Kharkiv in the near term. So they're basically casting doubt on Russia's ability to do so. A Russian incursion 15 kilometres in depth, several hundred kilometres in width, would be a massive operational undertaking that would require a grouping of forces far larger and significantly better resourced than what Russian forces currently have concentrated along the entire international border with Ukraine. But what we should say is it looks like on the Crimea to the Man axis and into sort of Kupiansk, Russia are starting to regroup and better resource their attempt to capture Kupiansk and fight from Krimina, which is Russian-held, into Le Mans. So there is, from the opposite direction, essentially, if you're not quite in the north corner, but if you further skirt down a little south, there are efforts to sort of ramp up and capture land inside the Kharkiv Oblast. But moving away from that, Russia is forcing farmers in the occupied Ukrainian regions of Kherson and Zaporizhia to join its army. That's according to Ukraine's military intelligence. The HUR, so the HUR, accused local authorities in the region of sending letters to farms telling all men of military age to sign up. It claims if they do not, fines of up to 400,000 rubles, that's about £3,500, have been threatened. So the HUR, the military intelligence unit, under the eyes of Major General Budinov, said it believed the mobilisation push had been prompted by Russian losses at the front line and the Kremlin's reluctance to call up men in its internationally recognised territories ahead of March's presidential elections. It's basically saying that they are looking to mobilise, forcibly mobilise men in occupied areas, so Ukrainians to fight Ukrainians, because they are reluctant to mobilise Russians inside the Russian borders ahead of these presidential elections. So interesting. And it's, it's, it's not something that is new. We've heard lots of people who have been actually forced to remain inside occupied territories that have been receiving letters about summons and basically threatened that they will be forcibly conscripted into the Russian forces and told to fight against Ukrainians or basically killed if they don't. So yeah, it's not new, but it's, it's again, interesting context that it's happening around the discussion when Vladimir Putin won't or will not mobilise again for any offensives. Back to more 
secret peace talks and reports of them. So Bloomberg has reported that Ukraine held secret talks with the G7, Saudi Arabia, India and Turkey about potential conditions for peace with Russia. So apparently there was a summit in Riyadh, which is Saudi Arabia's capital, on December 16th aimed to counter Russia's attempts to depict Ukraine as unwilling to negotiate an end to the war. So the G7 are reported to have rejected calls from attendees from outside the group to engage directly with Russia on a potential ceasefire. So good news for Ukraine and what we were discussing yesterday about not wanting, or in previous days about not wanting a ceasefire. Um, so they reportedly insisted that any deal must respect Ukraine's territory integrity. And that fits in with Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, which basically says that we can't really have any negotiations until Russia withdraws from the recognised 1991 borders, which also includes Crimea, by the way. So then to politics and diplomacy. So Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, is in or on a tour of the Baltic. So he landed in Lithuania, but he's also set to visit Estonia and Latvia. So this is what he said on X, formerly known Twitter, formerly known as whatever we call it. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are reliable friends and principal partners. Security, EU and NATO in integration, cooperation on electric warfare and drones and further coordination of European support are on the agenda. Um, and it's slightly breaking and I caught Zelensky on Telegram and Twitter talking about it. So I'll quickly just grab it where I can. But he was basically saying that he was in Lithuania to sign a deal for the long-term sort of security of Ukraine, which involved weapons, equipment, training for our soldiers, and Lithuania's leadership in a demining coalition. But basically, what we think is, what has basically been signed today, is that Ukraine and Lithuania are putting together a deal which would mean a ramping up or starting of drone production possibly on Lithuanian territory, because it's easier to get logistical supplies of kit there, and then they can easily be transported into Ukraine from there. So this will probably all be part of Zelensky's promise, his bid to manufacture one million drones, whether they be FPV, these first-person view attack drones, or other kinds of drones to support its long-range capabilities this year. So Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, has ordered you European officials to draw up a list of each country's planned weapon shipments to Ukraine in a bid to put pressure on allies to fulfil deliveries. So the German Chancellor has warned the European Union and its 27 member states that their military contributions to Kyiv's fight against the Russian invasion, invasion are too small. So initially, this move will pile huge pressure on France, Italy and Spain to commit more support for Ukraine as the flow of Western weapons and aid basically wanes. So Europe is under significant pressure from the United States, which has been the largest single country donor to Ukraine, to take over the mantle in supporting Kyiv while basically Joe Biden's own aid plans are blocked by Republicans in Congress. So despite early opposition for arming Ukraine, Berlin has become Vladimir Zelensky's second largest international backer behind Washington. So late last year, Germany, which is Europe's largest economy, promised to double its military aid to Ukraine to 8 billion euros for 2024. But Olaf Scholz has warned, and I quote, this alone will not be enough to guarantee Ukraine's security in the long term. 
I therefore call on our allies in the European Union to also step up their efforts in support for Ukraine. The arms deliveries for Ukraine planned so far by the majority of EU member states are by all means too small. So frustrated by Europe's waning support for Kyiv, say not just Europe, the US has run out of funds as of the beginning of this year, Mr. Schultz has ordered European officials to draw up a list of promised future weapons deliveries, basically arguing that we need sort of sight of what's going on because we are not aware of them. So the dossier is going to be presented to EU leaders as evidence they aren't pulling their weight when they meet for an emergency Brussels summit on February the 1st, which was basically penciled in to discuss the bloc's plan 50 billion in financial aid for Kyiv, so it's not weapons, but that's financial macroeconomic assistance, which was discussed in the December summit, but blocked by Hungary and Viktor Orban. So why I mention this move will likely pile pressure on Paris, Rome and Madrid, who are the EU's second, third and large, fourth largest economies, is because they've been deemed to have basically not been doing enough. So Germany has basically been come in as the US has, I guess, done increasingly frustrated that their actions, so this is the other European economies, do not match their promises of support for Kyiv for as long as it takes. And essentially, they're annoyed, Berlin's annoyed, because Berlin is constantly in the firing line and accused of not doing enough for Ukraine. So diplomatic sources have previously told me and complained that Emmanuel Macron, the French president's and I quote, preference is for big speeches over big support, which is an idea, if accepted by the majority of Europe, is an acceptance that Kyiv and Europe loses this war. The exasperation has led Germany, seeking to reduce the amount it gives to a 20 billion euro planned EU fund for purchasing weapons for Ukraine. And that's according to a, according to a document leaked to me last month. So this confidential non-paper by Berlin argued that its bilateral donations should be considered against funds it is expected to pay into this cash pot. But without Germany's uh, contribution, which is about a quarter of the entire war chest, there are fears that the European Peace Facility, which has been which has provided Kyiv with around four and a half billion euros in weaponry and trained more than thirty thousand recruits, would simply fall apart. Um, because of the scheme, France, Italy and Spain's bilateral com contributions to Ukraine are seen as incredibly low um, because it has basically allowed them to claim back for hardware sent to Kyiv rather than just simply donating that kit and paying for it himself, itself. So Paris has donated only €544 million in aid um, since the start of the full-scale invasion and in the the weeks before that, according to a tracker maintained by the Kiel Institute, that's a German think tank. Similarly, Rome has promised just 691 million and Madrid 348 million. So let's take that into comparison. Germany has promised a total of 17 billion and Britain has promised 6.5 billion so far. There's obviously doubts over Britain's future aid, but if you speak to Grant Shapps and his team, they do insist it's coming. And I guess Whitehall sources are pointing that the UK would seek to basically rerun its two and a half, two point three billion pound promise that is made to Ukraine each year. So the European Union has already 
promise to sort of scale up its support for Ukraine. So this is according to Belgium's Prime Minister Alexander de Croo. His comment come basically a day after Belgium took over the EU's six-month rotating presidency. So this is what Alexander de Croo had to say. The EU will further scale up its support to Ukraine. He added, we will continue bringing our economies and people closer while Ukraine progresses on its accession path. He's talking about Ukraine moving forward as it's as it joins the EU. It was offered candidate status and accession talks at that summit in Brussels in December. And meanwhile, going to the Arctic and Alexei Navalny, who is the basically only most prominent Russian opposition who is banged up in a Russian gulag. He has joked, or for a spokesperson or spokesman, about the invigorating conditions at the Arctic Circle AK free penal colony that he was moved to in December. So the jailed Russian opposition leader wrote in an update for his support on Telegram and shared a picture of the yard. He's allowed to walk in, concrete ward and topped with metal bars, 11 long and three steps wide. And this is what Navalny wrote. It has not been colder than minus 32 degrees Celsius. Nothing quite invigorates you like a walk in Yamal at 6.30 in the morning. Even at this temperature, you can walk for more than half an hour only if you manage to grow a new nose, new ears and new fingers. So AK, IK3, sorry, is nicknamed the Polar Wolf. It's about 40 miles from the Arctic Circle and was founded in the 1960s as a gulag in the Yamal Nenets region. And I'll stop there, David. Well, thank you very much, Joe. It's um, often quite difficult, I think, to keep track on of all the aid promises, uh, the money. So thank you so much for talking us through all of that. Um, Roland Oliphant, can we come to you? First of all, welcome back and Happy New Year. It's very good to have you back with us. We run this podcast daily. We always start, as Joe has just done, with the news from Ukraine and Russia. And I think sometimes we, we find it difficult to sort of take a step back, take in and analyse the broader picture could you do that for us? What's the tenor of the conversations you've been having with contacts and friends in Ukraine? What What are you hearing? Yeah, it's. I suppose I do have a bit of perspective. I've not been paying. I've been off for a couple of months and not deliberately taking a break from news and being a civilian, really. And the past several days, I've been speaking to a lot of my contacts, sources, friends, sources who've become friends. And the the tenor. I mean, the general tenor is basically quite pessimistic at the moment. I mean, I, I think I think everybody is sounding gloomy for one reason or another. And there's there's a number of things that, that feed into that. There's obvious fatigue, I mean, which is not surprising after, well, we're about to enter the third year of the war, aren't we? That's not surprising. That's been building for a while. But also, people are acutely aware of these discussions in the West, the kind of American aid being held up, European aid being held up. That worries them. I think that the failure of the counteroffensive has begun to hit home. I don't think the failure of the counteroffensive came as a surprise to anyone who was closely following it. Certainly not to the soldiers who were fighting in it. Like journalists I know, Ukrainians I've spoken to were not, you know, so they're not shocked by it. But I think last time I was there or last time I spoke to you guys, I think we were still waiting for it finally to peter out before it could be it could be called the whistle was blowing and, and, and you know what the outcome is. And right up to that last moment, there was this hope, well, maybe we'll get the breakthrough, maybe we'll get the breakthrough. It just didn't happen. And there's no way, there's no way you can paint that huge battle, which was the big set piece battle of last year as anything other than the Ukrainian defeat and quite serious one. A lot of hopes were riding on it, obviously. I think that's hit a lot of people 
and this uncertainty about what comes next and added on top of that and this comes up in in multiple conversations with multiple people unprompted is a sense that kind of political life is back to business as usual and in the kind of worst ways and that goes hand in hand with a sense that the unity that there was that incredible sense of of national solidarity that there was in the first weeks and months of the war has dissipated i was speaking to a soldier i know in the kharkiv region i mean he's been fighting except when he was wounded and recovering he's basically been on duty since he signed up in a couple of days after or in fact on the day of the full-scale invasion nearly two years ago now and he said just let me actually pull up the quote so i can i can give it to you we're suffering from our government there's not so much respect there's no money no vacations if you're in the army bad health care you need to force it out of the government and that's as a soldier as a citizen it may be even worse because now we've got citizens mobilized by first he's this guy's a volunteer right he's a guy who wanted to fight is still fighting so he's going to carry on fighting you know he's saying you know you, you you're now finding yourself alongside people who don't really want to be there they don't want to be there because they don't know what will be with them and their families if they get injured there's very little trust he's saying in the powers that be in the government and the ministry of defense to kind of look after you if something goes wrong um from the first days all ukrainians were together to defend the country with the government and now it's like we're separated we have people with money with power who are dealing with their own problems and we have poor people who need to fight for this government i can see no justice many in the army feel like me maybe most in the army feel like me um, because we see this corruption and it's stupid. Now, that that could just be, you know, one disgruntled guy, but that kind of sentiment has been expressed to me by, I mean, multiple people over the past few days, um, and not just soldiers. Just this, a deep kind of frustration. There's also this kind of diffidence about talking about um, corruption, this kind of consciousness that the more kind of Western allies see that discussed openly there's a fear of it being used as a as an excuse to close down aid supplies that ukraine really needs but at the same time there's definitely simply amongst people i speak to from all walks of life a perception at least that there's a bunch of people getting quite rich off this war and then the other thing that comes up in the next thing that comes up in conversation has come up several times is this question of conscription. So there is this this new draft law that's meant to come in. It's meant to lower the conscription age from 27 to 25 and provide the legal basis for drafting about 300,000 more people. There's clear kind of political nervousness about the impact that's going to have, about how popular that will be in the government. A lot of people, you know, especially people who are kind of your classic kind of Ukrainian who very much values their freedom and doesn't like being told what to do by the government finds that objectionable. On the other hand, they know they need money. And one is one person said to me, I'm deliberately not you know, I'm deliberately disguising my sources here. But one Ukrainian said to me who expressed that that kind of she expressed this dichotomy to me of like, on the one hand, people don't like that and don't like being told what to do. But on the other hand, the opinion polls, if they're to be believed, and certainly in my anecdotal conversations with people, say that the country wants to keep fighting, it doesn't want to give up, it doesn't want to surrender, and you've got to make a choice. It's either fight, because losses have been high. That's the reality. Losses have been very high. So either you are going to have to go and fight, because the guys who've been fighting have been there for two years and haven't had a break, and they're just desperately saying, just give us a month off, or it's going to be the talks and the end. And 
to wrap it all together, I think part of the reason for the despondency is that it's been two years of war and there's no end in sight, really, because people are genuinely tired. People are genuinely fed up. People, everybody's lost friends. Everybody's lost family. The country has taken massive losses. And yet they know that Russian war aims haven't changed. This remains an existential war of survival for Ukraine. The Kremlin's objective is to basically destroy the country. And I, I think that's true. So a tough situation. I haven't detected kind of... I wouldn't say there's a, in my conversation, a kind of constituency for concessions, but there's definitely a a gloominess that that just sits over on top of everything. It kind of permeates every conversation I've had. So if that's not very optimistic, not at all, Roland. That's fun. That's that's fantastic. Thank you so much for t- taking us through some of your thoughts. Um, let's keep on looking back before we start looking forward. Do you think there are any stories over the past few months or in the new year that you've been that have been underanalyzed or or considered by the media or maybe the public as well? I've been thinking about that. I don't have an easy answer for you on that. Do you? <laughs> I apologize. I think that there's there's this general thing about. I was taken by surprise by how much Gaza distracted everybody really. And that's not a specific thing about we've missed this thing about Ukraine or or that thing about Ukraine. I feel like news moves quite quickly. And, you know, those of us who work in the news are are used to it. You know, we're familiar with the with the bitter reality that, you know, something gets old and then something new happens and so on. But the degree to which, um, you know, the Gaza situation um, knocked Ukraine almost completely off the off the radar in a way and just you know there was barely any time to think about it um i think there's a general um there's a general sense that it's been put on the back burner and i think that's understandable but at the same time somewhat unfortunate because i I still think you know tiresome though it is wearisome though it is this remains the the single greatest kind of security issue geostrategic issue everything you want to call facing certainly europe at this moment roland you mentioned in your conversations that a sort of general turn of despondency of gloominess um could we flip this round what positives do you see um at the moment maybe in the future and what do you think are the sort of big challenges you've sort of you've touched on some of these points but maybe it'd be good to wrap them up what are the big challenges in the year ahead for both russia and ukraine I mean, Ukraine's, you know, always been the underdog and it has the biggest challenges, I suppose. I mean, look, it's it's still in the fight. I think despite the despondency, you know, even that soldier who was telling me how annoyed he is and all his comrades are with a lot of the richer people in the country, if you will, or the more powerful or the government, he was quite clear. He was like, we're going to fight. There's no no question about that. Whatever I'm saying now, that that's not over. I think, and even those who very quietly, privately say things like, listen, don't tell anyone that I would stop fighting now if I could. And I have had those conversations, by the way, and those have... I began to have those conversations, I think, in September, and I've definitely had a couple more of them recently. Even those people don't see how it's meant to stop and are not willing to make the kind of... to sacrifice Ukrainian nationhood. So, I mean, I mean, the country's still together. Western support, I think, is actually still there. I think the clarity that the invasion brought to particularly British, but as Joe was just talking about, you know, the Germans getting frustrated with the French just now, across Europe, 
this clarity of thought about what the threat is and what's going on here, I, I don't think that's gone away, actually. There are positives. There was an economic recovery last year, actually. 2022 was dreadful, and then things began to get better. Now, that's, there are these worries about whether the United States and the European Union are going to authorise um, financial aid for Ukraine in time for that to continue, and there will be trouble if that doesn't happen. But there are signs of um, a recovering economy. Um, so as long as Ukraine is still standing, you know, that's, that's a kind of positive for them. In terms of challenges, there's the big challenge of losses and manpower and this conscription law and how they handle that the failure of the offensive is i think it's basically a serious setback and i think my i don't know back of a cigarette packet kind of thoughts would be that the next task would be to rebuild for potentially another offensive in 2025 so you're talking about at least another year of war so that's got to be put together and you've got you have got internal you have got internal challenges. You've got a public voicing frustrations with the government that they might not have voiced um, before. And if you talk to people who, you know, and journalists who follow politics or even people in the system as well, there's definite signs of tensions within the kind of the Ukrainian government between departments, between a presidential administration, different ministries. I'm sure you've talked about this podcast before, but a lot of people talk about this perceived kind of tensions between General Zaluzhny and, and Vladimir Zelensky and how that's affecting morale. I think that is keeping it together in a third year of war is always going to be difficult. And that's a challenge. And you've got, you know, I was speaking to, I was speaking to some people in kind of <sighs> parts of the Ukrainian government apparatus, let's put it that way, who said one thing that's on their mind is the number of people abroad and how they quite like to see people coming back for, for economic reasons as much as anything else. A lot of Ukrainians are abroad. And one of the concerns gnawing at the back of their minds is that the longer this war goes on, the, that's fewer people who are going to come back, fewer refugees who are going to... The longer it goes on, the longer refugees have had to put down their roots in another country, decide this is where my life is, and not come back. And that's bad news for the country. And then there's the external pressures, right? I mean, these debates about the continuation of aid, these debates about whether <clears throat> the failure of the offensive compels the West to yank the chain, as one Ukrainian diplomat put it to me, and finally say, okay, it's time for you to sit down and have the unpalatable talks about conceding territory to the Russians in exchange for peace. Is that going to happen? I don't know. But this election in America in, what is it, in November, I think everyone's going to be looking at that and readying for that, because the perception will be that an awful lot rides on that. And I think actually Russia's got a lot of the same problems, right? I mean, okay it's bigger okay the war generally isn't on its territory it's got all these resources it can source weapons from north korea but it's the third year of a of a very big war they've got an election in march i wouldn't waste any time at all kind of agonizing about what the result of that is going to be vladimir you know they've had a lot of practice in making sure vladimir putin wins whatever absurdly high percentage of the vote and will be in office basically for life but they <laughs> these things have impacts on society and people get tired and the longer it goes on the longer Russia is storing up all of these all of these debts I mean not just in financial terms but I mean when you put a country through the strain of a war you are you're borrowing against future stability against future kind of public order really so and there's the recruitment thing as well we know since the beginning of the war Vladimir Putin has tried to avoid 
formal mobilization, announcing another wave of mobilization and conscription, so on, for, for the same reasons why the Ukrainians are nervous about it. It's not a popular thing to do, right? Most people don't want to, like, get given a rifle and sent off to maybe come back in a body bag or even worse, maimed for life. So I think Russia's got really, it's the same thing, those long-term attritional challenges. And by the way, the West is also undergoing that that challenge, which we talked about since the beginning of the war, right, is that this is, it's a, a test of staying power. It's a test of your commitment. And the Kremlin thinks or believes that the West doesn't have the commitment, doesn't have the will to see this through. That test is still happening. Right? And this year is the year the Kremlin's making signals that says it thinks it thinks that maybe this is the year that Western resolve does begin to crumble. So everybody on all sides is under pressure and, and still being tested in every possible way, really. Roland, just one more question for me, really. You mentioned that the Russian election is fast approaching. Um, if for, for those of our listeners and those of us who haven't followed Russian presidential elections closely in the past, what should we expect? What should what are the stories we should be looking for? Um, what, what what do you make of it? As you said, it's in March, isn't it? It's in March. Maybe I'm jaded because I spent so much time in Russia going through the what do you call it? A charade or something? Go, going through the motions of caring about an election and kind of everybody it was almost emperor's new clothes stuff in rep but that maybe that's retrospect speaking but you know i went through so many of these elections where it was like oh well of course putin's the favorite candidate but what about this what about that oh there's this insurgent and so on in in retrospect everyone was playing the emperor's new clothes so of course vladimir putin is going to win he's going to win comfortably the main real kind of talented oppositionist threat is Alexei Navalny and he's in prison a lot of there, there will be a chunk of the usual suspects who do not want to vote for Vladimir Putin or United Russia I don't know whether they don't vote or they vote communist like they have in the past just as a kind of protest thing but they are not enough to shift things and if if past practice is anything to go by you know you can expect a kind of nominally independent candidate who will suddenly surge to prominence as the possible alternative, who is saying the kind of the things that liberals or oppositionists want to hear or appears to be speaking truth to power about the government doesn't pay attention to us. And that person, you can be fairly reliably sure, has been picked for the role and is playing the role of a kind of spoiler candidate to, to absorb opposition votes, to, to create an to create a an image of legitimacy to the election. We had a choice. There was an opposition candidate. The opposition candidate criticised the president. No one stopped them, but he won. That is, you know, that's part of the playbook. On the other hand, you know, I think one reason that the Kremlin, that Vladimir Putin's managed to stay in power so long is that they, maybe one day they will get complacent, but I don't think they are complacent about this kind of thing. And you can see them doing the kind of, bread and butter electioneering in a way. So yesterday was it? What's the date today? It's the 10th. Nice. No, yeah, I think it was yesterday. So there's only headlines in Russian media about how Vladimir Putin has personally taken control of the situation surrounding central heating in 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 Moscow region and and Kherson region as well, by the way, the occupied part of Ukraine. Um now this follows a few kind of high-profile outages of central heating. Sorry, for context, for those of you who don't know the former Soviet Union, most cities and towns in Russia and Ukraine, the former Soviet states, have like central centralized central heating, which means you don't have a, an individual boiler in your flat. It all comes from a, a power station that heats the entire district. 
and you can't really turn on your heating or turn it off. That's the thing, but which is which is really useful in a cold Russian winter. But if the boiler house goes out, then suddenly you've got whole blocks without heating, and this happened somewhere in Moscow region. Putin hasn't really pulled those stunts for a while, really. And the kind of the Kremlinology is that look, this is a signal that the Kremlin isn't taking anything for granted that they still feel like they've got to have the president showing that I am taking care of those bread and butter issues that Russians basically care about, basically more than the big questions about are we standing up to America? Is Russian honor being defended? Are the so-called Nazis being beaten in Ukraine? Really underpinning Vladimir Putin's success from the beginning was a very basic bread and butter social contract. So I think the, the spin doctors in the Kremlin are aware of that. And they're going to try to ensure that people see the big man appearing to look after them. Never say never. I said they don't get complacent. I don't know. Sometimes things snap. I was in Moscow in 2011 when patients snapped when Vladimir Putin said he was coming back for a second term after Medvedev. And suddenly you had an explosion of protest in Moscow, which nobody thought was possible at the time. Obviously, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't lead to the fall of the government. But the, the sudden surge of people saying, no, we've had enough, had come from a community, a society where normally, like the conversations you had were just routinely, our oh, politics has nothing to do with me. It doesn't matter. I can't change anything anyway. It just snapped like that. Situation's different now. But never, never rule it out. Never assume. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details that you can't be surprised by that place. Thank you so much for all of that, Roland. Joe, I don't know if you've got any questions or should we move to our final thoughts? I, hi, Roland. Welcome welcome back after your well-deserved break. I just want, maybe we could open up a discussion on, on how you feel and how I feel and David feels the military picture will play out on the front lines um, in 2024. We, we speak about, and I've spoken to various NATO officials, American, British, German, French, whatever, and they all agree that this war is going on beyond 2024, definitely into 2025. So it'd be interesting to see, yeah, what, what are your views on how the soldiers that we speak to, what, what are they going to be doing next year when there's probably not 
sufficient ammunition, sufficient hardware to main to maintain or sustain a another attempt at a huge offensive like they attempted last year? It's a good question, Joe. The simple answer is don't predict anything. But I, I mean, I think I was talking about that back of a cigarette packet kind of uninformed guess would be in line with what you just said, right? That the resources aren't there. And that, look, the counteroffensive demonstrated that, number one, like the battlefield is pretty much transparent, right? The chances of repeating a surprise like the, the counteroffensive in Kharkiv in, like in September 22 is slim to nothing, right? So, you know, the, the battlefield's transparent. It's very difficult to achieve surprise. And the resources required to break those front lines are enormous and they were not sufficient. There are all kinds of shortcomings and we've talked about before. You know, I mean, the squaddies that I spoke to at the time were saying the training was bad. Frankly, I think a lot of the brigades that were put in had were too fresh, not adequately trained. I think there was clearly a failure to appreciate somewhere. And I don't know, I don't know whose fault it is. Was it Ukrainians? Was it NATO advisors? I don't know. But somebody didn't appreciate the level of force and resource required for kind of conventional warfare on that scale, which, of course, NATO hasn't done since, what, Korea, probably? Um, I don't know. My guess would be stasis kind of building up to a big push in, in 2025. And I guess that the Russians would be doing the same. But that's a, I don't know. I mean, that's a guess. I think the challenge for the Ukrainians might be to like resist pressure to fill out a new brigade with new recruits and go, right, we've got to do something now and, and throw that brigade into some kind of offensive after only a couple of months training just because it happens to be a fresh new brigade when it's actually full of quite raw, not ready guys because that just keeps you in this cycle of then suddenly you've got another undermanned brigade that's got to be fitted out again and so on. Joe, I don't know. Does that tally with your thoughts? What do you think? Yeah, no, for sure. So, like, I, again, I'd hate to predict anything without sort of genuine intelligence reports but yeah look i guess 2024 is about conserving your forces and basically force generation can you rebuild your forces replenish them because there were significant losses in in some areas of the front line when so especially in the south where fighting was brutal and and yes there are issues with training it takes so like a nato soldier like, like hamish is listening as usual and how long did it take Hamish to learn to properly utilise a Western or well, a Challenger 2 tank in his case? But the, there's these guys who have probably never been a tanker before and they've been assigned to a unit of either volunteered or conscripted into the Ukrainian army. So it's, it's in, in, incredibly difficult. So what I'm thinking, guessing, is Ukraine has to preserve its force, maintain the front line, don't allow a Russian breakthrough, so an active defence, but... It has to put enough pressure on the Russian lines to keep probing, keep keep doing things to keep Russia in the same position. It doesn't want to allow Russia to conserve and replenish its forces anymore. But then you've also got this great like long-range duel that's going on. You've got Russia dumping as much as it can on Ukrainian cities, and then Ukraine is aiming into Crimea. It's looking to continue its degradation of the of the Black Sea fleet. It's hitting targets in Belgorod whether it be ammunition dumps, rocket launchers, other places where drones are launched from. It's... So I, I, I see sort of 2024 being the year of the long-range attacks. The front line's pretty flat unless a sort of a, a, something short of a miracle happens. While we look to the West, can it give Ukraine 
something? Is there going to be a new technology that Zaluzny spoke about in his interview with the Economist, new technology that will change this? So I won't call it a stalemate. I don't think that's fair because it's still all to play for. It's not. It's not in. It's not in deadlock. Both sides have it there to fight for. So yeah, but what I don't see is a massive sort of changing of the front lines, and I see probably much more emphasis on these deep fires, deep strikes aimed at trying to break the logistics and the and basically the efforts to sustain the forces on the front line and any chance of force generation going on. And yeah, I'll stop there on that. Well, thank you very much, Roland and Joe. Don't worry, Hamish, we'll come to you um, another day, I think, because I don't have this room for very much longer, I'm afraid. Um, but let's go then to our final thoughts. This has been quite a sobering podcast, I think. Um, and Maybe not depressing. Maybe depressing is wrong, but sort of gloomy, as as you said, and uh, as you said, Roland. Um, Roland, can I come to you first? As Joe's just been, um, how would you sum up the threads of what you've been talking about today? Look, war is sorry. Speaking in cliches again, it's never nice, and long wars are horrible. I don't personally see an end to this in the near future, and I, and I think part of the tragedy of it is that, it, for the reasons I was laying out there is still no obvious way to settle this. And for Western governments and Western listeners, it does. it is interesting to me how profound, it still fascinates me how profound the shift was in, let's say, British perceptions. Right? So I've had conversations with Ukrainian diplomats who were saying things like, let's go back to say, I don't know, 2018, 2017, something like that. It was really difficult to get even the Brits to go publicly saying, I don't know, I don't know, just doing what the Ukrainians felt they needed to get the attention of the West. There was this kind of complacency. And I remember having conversations with kind of people around about Whitehall who would they dismiss Russia as like, oh, it's only got an economy the size of Italy. I wouldn't worry about that. And that's even after the Skripal poisoning, by the way. The way that has shifted is quite remarkable. I don't know how sustainable the shift is, but I... I still don't see that going away. I, I think that there is that that fundamental kind of waking up, if you will, this idea that we, Britain at least, or the Western general kind of still seriously understands that this is not a charity case. This is about its own essential national interests at stake. Um, I don't actually think that's really under threat, to be honest. Um, there is the question of um, public... Uh, Excuse me for being slow. Fatigue, right? Ukraine fatigue. We have elections in the West. Um, we have a cost of living crisis, all of that. And I definitely think the Kremlin is looking at that very hopefully. But I don't think that those calculations have changed, which is why I think like this war is going to join on for rather a while, to be absolutely honest with you. Thank you very much, Roland. Joe Barnes, would you like to finish the episode today? Yeah, I, oh, I really do agree with... Roland on the fact that it could drag on for a long time and turn into sort of the the stasis of the 2014 conflict, which then allows Russia to rebuild and go again if Ukraine isn't given enough. But I just want to look at the British element of it. I wrote uh, the piece yesterday on Germany calling on the EU to do more, but there is a big UK element to this as well. So the UK, its funding essentially for Ukraine runs out in March, April time. We've committed 2.3 billion uh, pounds every year in military aid to Ukraine, a little bit more on 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 terms of financial and grants and loans to help Kiev's economy. Um, and there's been little word from the government on this, whether or not we will basically 
see Britain donate more or less. So people I speak to kind of say that the 2.3 billion could be rolled over. Ben Wallace, because he departed from the job as Defence Secretary, called on Rishi Sunak to at least match that number. So in a parliamentary debate on Monday, Grant Shapps, the current Defence Secretary, said critics of Britain's commitment to Ukraine would not be disappointed by the government's plans. He told the Commons that this is not in any way, shape or form in danger of running out. He's talking about the cash for Ukraine. And yeah, it just it just leaves me pondering. And it's a question that I'll be asking. I asked a very senior Whitehall person in charge of Ukrainian stuff uh, the other day. Why can't Britain do more? Why can't it double its funding to Ukraine? And the answer was, look, I don't think you're going to be disappointed with when Britain does announce what its plans are for 2024 and onwards or mid-2024 and onwards. But please judge us when we do that. So I think there's still a bit of soul searching in Britain over what to do with its Ukrainian funding. I don't see it dropping below that 2.3 billion mark. Uh, The rhetoric is too strong from the likes of Sunak and Cameron on that. But I, I think there are questions over whether or not Britain is prepared to go where Germany went and look at doubling its aid and actually trying to maintain its role as a really senior and prominent backer of Ukraine in in the West. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.